Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. As the number of COVID-19 cases passes the 4 million mark in the U.S., President Trump cancels the GOP convention planned for Jacksonville, Florida next month. I looked at my team and I said, the timing for this event is not right. It's just not right with what's happened recently, the flare-up in Florida. To have a big convention, it's not the right time. The president orders more federal agents to quell Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Bev Barnum, founder of the yellow-clad Wall of Moms in Portland, Oregon, spoke with us about what it was like standing between protesters and federal agents on Saturday night. Us moms, we were holding the line. Like, I don't know how the fence came down, but as soon as it came down, the feds were, I mean, smoke everywhere, uh, beanbag rounds everywhere. Yeah, it's like a war zone. When they come out, like, you're not, you're not human. The administration orders the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas, closed. Chinese diplomats there spent the night burning documents. A neighbor described the scene. You could just smell the, the paper burning. There's a smell of paper burning. But uh, all the firefighters were just surrounding the building. They couldn't go inside. It is our Week in the News, and we have a great panel this hour from Washington, D.C., Susan Page. She's Washington Bureau Chief at USA Today. Susan, welcome to One Point. Nice to have you. Jane, it's great to be with you. Also from Washington, Annie Carney. She's White House correspondent for The New York Times. Annie, great to have you with us. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. And from Houston, Luis Carrasco. He's editorial writer and member of the Houston Chronicles editorial board. Luis, welcome to One Point. Uh, Hi, happy to be here. Well, thank you all. Uh, Let's begin with the pandemic, uh, because the U.S. now has the highest rate of coronavirus infections in the world, more than 4 million confirmed cases. More Americans are on track to be hospitalized with coronavirus than at any point in the pandemic. Annie Carney, we'll start with you. Almost every metric shows how badly America is losing uh, this fight against the virus. That's right. And we're seeing um, the president really try and shift this week, um, kind of have a reset on COVID, try to, you know, he brought back the the coronavirus briefings. He's appeared uh, three days in a row um, in the briefing room to talk about the pandemic. He has admitted a rare that, that the, it's going to get worse before it gets better, which is a very rare statement for someone who's been trying to act, to will the, it to be that the worst of this is in the rearview mirror. The numbers are just getting uh, too impossible for him to ignore. Um, that being said, he is still avoiding any national mask mandate, any national um, any national policies. He's still trying to leave how to deal with this really to states. Mm. President Trump says that uh, more testing explains those huge numbers, the 4 million confirmed cases, that more testing explains that increase. But Susan Page, yesterday, the Centers for Disease Control says the country could see up to 30,000 more deaths in the next two weeks. Here's President Trump at the briefing uh, on COVID at the White House on Tuesday. We are uh, in the process of developing a strategy that's going to be very, very powerful. We've developed them as we go along. Some areas of our country are doing very well. Others are doing less well. It will probably, unfortunately, get worse before it gets better. Something I don't like saying about things, but that's the way it is. Susan, what is the strategy the president is referring to there? And how is the president describing a strategy now being developed when we're months and months into the worst health crisis in the lives of anyone who lives in America today. Uh, It is an explanation for why the president's approval rating on handling the coronavirus is dismal by two to one Americans disapprove of the job he's done. It's undercut his presidential campaign. It's undermined the economy he hoped to run on. Uh, And, you know, it's it's interesting. His tone in these last these briefings last three days have been been pretty restrained, especially for him. They've been shorter briefings than he did the first time around, they've been less, he's tried to be less provocative. 
And we all, I think, keep waiting for the opportunity when reporters are able to ask tough questions to see if he can kind of stick to the script he's been reading. This has been a devastating development for President Trump. More importantly, it's been so devastating across the country for all these lives that have been lost and for the economy that's been undermined. Mm. Well, the infection rate and the uptick in hospitalizations uh, reflects a really a different phase of the pandemic and a widening geographic area. California has more reported cases now than New York did uh, at its peak. And in the past week, Florida and Texas added an average of 10,000 new cases every day. Luis, you're in Houston. Describe what it's like for uh, for you there in Texas. Well, it's it's definitely uh, the state has been struggling, you know, regarding the, the president's change in tone. I, I think we welcome his visit to reality and, and kind of hope that he stays here for a while, uh, because, you know, it wasn't that long ago when the daily report of covid cases here, when it broke 2000, we felt it was cause for alarm. Now that it's dipping below 10,000, we're seeing that as hopeful signs. The, the latest numbers here are 370,000 cases, new cases and more than 4,600 deaths. Uh, and Houston has a quarter of all those cases. So, so we're definitely a, a hard hit area. And so far it's been a mixed bag of what we're seeing. You know, ICUs are still over uh, capacity, but uh, new cases and overall hospitalization seem to be, so be falling. So we are, you know, cautiously optimistic, uh, especially after the, the governor here did order a statewide mask mandate three weeks ago. So that seems to be helping us kind of turn the corner. To that point of masks, um, you know, President Trump shifted his tone uh, this week with regard to masks. He's been reluctant to wear one or to be photographed in a mask. Now he is encouraging uh, the public to wear them. Annie Carney, what changed for the president to your mind? Uh, His poll numbers have changed dramatically and a realization that something has to give with 100 days to go into the election um, and that and that he needs to be seen by Americans as taking this virus seriously again and that it's not over is what changed. Um, The um, White House aides are very split on what he should do about coronavirus, but many of them are pleased with that picture that he tweeted out. But it was just a picture. I mean, that same night, he appeared at a fundraiser at the Trump Hotel in Washington, and someone posted video from it, and he was inside, not six feet apart from the people around him, not wearing a mask. So this is going to be an ongoing challenge, as Susan said. He, you know, we're all way too familiar with the pattern of Trump reads from a script, and we talk about a new tone, and he undermines himself either on Twitter or getting into it with reporters the next day. Um, So we'll see how this plays out. But there is a growing realization that, you know, even with canceling the convention, which I'm sure we'll get to here. Yes. There's a growing realization that um, something has to give. Let's go to Atlanta for a minute because uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp filed a lawsuit against Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and the city council because the city refused to lift a rule requiring people in Atlanta to wear face masks in public. Uh, This week, they seem to be coming to an understanding. Here's uh, Mayor Bottoms on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon on Wednesday. Hopefully we can um, figure out a way to agree to disagree without having to play this out in court. But at the end of the day, we want the same thing. We want people to be safe. We want to stop the spread of COVID-19. And it certainly doesn't help when when we're having to fight one another. Luis, you know, a governor suing a major mayor in his own state. You've been watching this extraordinary back and forth. What did you make of it this week? Uh, I'm I'm stunned, frankly, that that the governor, uh, the governor Kemp, hasn't uh, just looked uh, over to the west to, to Texas, for example. The the governor here did order that statewide uh, mask um, use, and it's it's really you know trying to trying to help that because before that it it was really getting out of control. So so I think that that uh, this reluctance by Republican officials to follow with that mask order is is, is troubling and, and very puzzling, even though the governor here did take away, you know, cities and localities' abilities, just like uh, Kemp did, to enforce uh, other stronger measures. It's, uh, like I said, it's, it's very puzzling. Let me move to the vaccine uh, fight uh, hunt this week. The Trump administration announced a nearly $2 billion contract with the drug company Pfizer, as well as a German biotech company to produce 100 million doses of a COVID-19 
vaccines. Susan Page, depending on when a vaccine is available, uh, these doses, I guess, could start shipping out as early as the end of the year. Uh, The stars have to be aligned on all this. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts and still a lot of questions about how a potential vaccine would be distributed to 100 million people in this country, Susan. What did you hear in this announcement this week? Well, there's uh, you hear a lot of optimism that progress is being made on this in this that particular vaccine and in some others. Another two billion dollars has been invested by the federal government and some other projects that are trying to develop the vaccine. The scientists caution, though, that this is really a very rapid timetable for development of a vaccine. They hold out hope that uh, they, some of the trials that have been going on have been uh, have seen have seen good results. Uh, it is the thing that makes this pandemic turn around. The availability of a safe and effective vaccine, uh, available, widely available to Americans, is the thing that would make it possible for kids to go back to school, for parents to go back to work, for the commerce to begin to, to return to some sense of normalcy. So the president's hope is that if you can't have a vaccine by Election Day, at least have reports that a vaccine is on its way in short order by Election Day, because that would be the best possible news for Americans in general, but also for the president who is facing the possibility now of losing his bid for a second term. Mm. And the additional concern among many uh, who may not take the vaccine, uh, certainly being fast-tracked there. Uh, Annie Carney, in our last 30 seconds here, talking about kids going back to school, there was a lot of uh, back and forth about that in Washington this week. What did you hear? Um, I mean, everyone, I think, would love – I mean, it's 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 the big question for the fall. I mean, it is the, the biggest tell of whether people will start be able to work full-time, whether life will be able to – feel at all like normal. But we don't know. Dr. Burks, Dr. Debbie Burks went on TV this morning and she said she can't say whether um, transmit kids under 10 transmit the, the disease or not. Um, there's just not enough information to know whether it's safe or not yet. We're looking at the week in the news with a terrific panel. Susan Page, USA Today, Annie Carney, New York Times, and Luis Carrasco of the Houston Chronicle. Uh, stick with us when we come back. Uh, we'll talk about federal agents ordered to more American cities and Congress struggles to pass a stimulus bill. Much more this week to come. I'm Jane Clayson. and this is On Point. We'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. 
Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. and welcome back to our Week in the News. My guests this hour, Annie Carney, White House correspondent for The New York Times, Susan Page, Washington bureau chief for USA Today, and Luis Carrasco, editorial writer and member of the Houston Chronicle's editorial board. Um, let's talk about President Trump this week announcing um, plans to send hundreds more federal agents to the Democratic-run cities of Chicago and Albuquerque uh, to crack down on crime. This significantly expands the scope of a program that has been characterized by Democrats as borderline authoritarian. Uh, Susan, what's the role of these officers on the ground in these U.S. cities as you see well, it? That's- that's a big question. You know, the, the, it's it's not unusual or it's not unprecedented for federal forces to be deployed to cities that are having serious civil unrest. You know, we saw that in L.A., for instance, after the Rodney King riots or after the assassination of the Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in, in 1968. But what's different this time is that some of the cities that the president is talking about sending troops have not, in fact, seen violent protests uh, they many of them are not interested in having federal forces sent there. And to critics, it seems like a nice fit for President Trump with the law and order theme that he's been striking in his campaign. So there's a lot of suspicion about what these troops would do. And the, the pictures that we've seen out of Portland, this is a slightly different program where federal forces have been deployed. But you see what looks like paramilitary troops picking up demonstrators and putting them in unmarked vans to take to where we don't we're not sure at the over the objections of the mayor and the governor so this is something we're going to be watching uh the mayor of chicago has said where they've had a serious problem with crime that's gotten worse has said she'll welcome these federal troops to come in and help them with in some ways but she cautioned, she used just the word you did about authoritarianism, that they're not, they're not interested in that. Mm. Well, uh, to Susan's point, the Justice Department's independent watchdog agency says it will investigate the use of force by federal law enforcement officers in Portland, Oregon, and in Washington, D.C. Um, Annie Carney, the, the review will include an examination of the instructions they receive these officers, their compliance with policies regarding proper identification, you know, putting uh, protesters in unmarked vans and taking them off, as well as the use of chemical agents. Is this an unusual move by DOJ, Annie? Um, yeah, I mean, this DOJ has not had a lot of daylight with what the White House wants. And I've been told that these scenes of confrontation and chaos um, is exactly what um, the president wants to be seeing. Um, they not only, you know, help to burnish this narrative that Democratic elected officials are allowing dangerous protesters to spread mayhem, um, but this is something like to his core he has always disliked. If you remember during the midterm elections, he wanted to send uh, troops to the border in Mexico um, and John Kelly um, a retired four-star general who was his chief of staff at the time, at the time publicly said, he, we can't do that. He, he has a different um, staff around him now. He has an acting person as DHS secretary. Um, he has uh, few, uh, you know, fewer guardrails around him now, stopping those basic instincts to want to create these images, to want to um, use force and presidential power, even when city leaders are not asking for help. Um, It's all very unusual. Here is Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot pushing back at President Trump's order to send federal troops to Chicago. Uh, This was on Wednesday. The president has been on a campaign now for some time against Democratic mayors across the country, whether it's me, whether it's Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta, whether it's Muriel Bowser in Washington, D.C., whether it's Jenny Durkin in Seattle. You see a common theme here? The president is trying to divert attention from his failed leadership on COVID-19. He has failed. He has failed. He has failed. 
Susan Page, uh, one last point on this. Uh, State and local leaders have repeatedly called for federal agents to leave their cities. More than a dozen U.S. mayors sent an open letter to A.G. Bill Barr calling for the DOJ to withdraw these forces from their cities, stop sending these troops. What does the White House have planned now moving forward, Susan? Well, the the White House insists that they have uh, authorization under federal law to go to protect federal facilities like courthouses that in the Portland protests have been the target of some attack. Um, but as as Annie said, you know, t- t- to have confrontations like that, that reinforces the point the president is making that only he can fix it, that only he can be trusted. And yesterday he said, he said it suggested in a tweet that, that in, in terms of canceling an Obama-era rule designed to bring fair housing to suburbs, that suburban housewives uh, better watch out. He was retweeting an article, I think. Suburban housewives better watch out uh, for what the dangers of electing a Democrat. I think that's one of the things that makes this seem so perilous to the president's critics, this mixing of the most serious functions that a president can deploy with his political prospects. Let's go to Houston now, uh, where the United States ordered China to close its consulate there. Luis, tell us what happened and the significance of this. Well, we we found out about it after neighbors reported smoke coming from the the consulate building, which is located in a trendy central part of Houston here. Uh, You know, it was like a scene out of a movie with the consular staff burning documents after they were apparently told they had 72 hours to, to shut down. Fire personnel, police showed up, but they weren't allowed inside. You had firefighters on ladders actually looking down into the complex, trying to see what was going on. And it was just, you know, staff burning these documents. Uh, The U.S. is saying that, you know, this is um, in as a consequence of China, China's activities, which uh, uh, spying uh, being uh, most of all. but uh, it, it differently hurts relations with China, and it's a blow to the business expat community here. And it, there's there's an interesting significance, you know. After a few years after Nixon went to China, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping came to Houston. There's a famous photo of the Chinese leader wearing a cowboy hat, and the consulate here was the country's first in the U.S. And now, you know, you see it as this focal point for for the escalation of tensions between Washington and Beijing. Mm. Here's a clip uh, from a press briefing in Beijing on Wednesday. Here, the foreign ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin responded to Washington's order that Chinese diplomats shut down their consulate in Houston and leave. China strongly condemns such an outrageous and unjustified move, which will sabotage China-U.S. relations. We urge the U.S. to immediately withdraw its erroneous decision, Otherwise, China will make a legitimate and necessary response. And we called Bonnie Glazier, uh, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, to ask her why the administration ordered the Chinese consulate in Houston to close. She said the administration wants to get tough on China over its extensive industrial espionage efforts inside the U.S. And then she continued with this. But it's also aimed at mobilizing other countries to join a coalition to push back against China. And I think in addition, the Trump administration wants to make it difficult, if not impossible, for a future Biden administration, should Vice President Biden be elected, to improve ties with China. Well, that's an interesting charge. Uh, Susan Page, what do you make of that? Well, uh, you know, it's. I, I guess I, I would. Def- she, I'm sure she's got more expertise than I than I do on on that. I, th- I think the president's thinking, in some ways, is a little shorter term. Uh, you know, one of the things that the president we hear the president do in these daily briefings is repeatedly blame China for our current predicament with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, it's made it's made those that idea that we were going to have some big trade deal. With China, which the president has talked about for for the last three and a half years, seem like a pretty distant prospect. It's hard to imagine relations between the United States and China brightening enough before the end of his first term to make that a possibility again. Well, uh, to Luisa's point, the U.S. has never taken such a step against China since the two countries established diplomatic relations back in 1979. Annie Carney, uh, how does this impact the relationship now between these two countries? Um, I, I mean, it, it raises tensions. Um, 
which is part of what Trump wants to do, part of a comprehensive anti-China message. But um, one thing that my colleagues reported in the New York Times, which I thought was interesting, was that the closing of this consulate um, may be less detrimental to relations with Beijing than closing another one. And we don't know whether they're going to continue. And that's because the sister mission of this one was in Wuhan and the State Department evacuated Wuhan at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. Mm. Um, so there's kind of a parallel there. Yes. If they close other ones going forward, it could escalate this uh, dramatically. And Luis Carrasco, what's the possible retaliation to your mind here at this point? Well, apparently China has already told the U.S. that they are shutting the consulate in uh, Chengdu. So they are they're not going you know, they are not giving the U.S. the easy way out by by closing the already shuttered uh, consulate in in Wuhan. They are you know, they're striking in Chengdu, which is a region that includes uh, Tibet, which is obviously of of interest to to the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all uh, for that. I'd like to move to Capitol Hill now uh, because Senate Republicans are preparing to roll out a new $1 trillion coronavirus relief package. Uh, Susan Page, update us on the next round of this aid plan in Washington. Well, we thought we'd be in a better place today than we are. The, yep. the, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, had announced he was going to have a big news conference yesterday morning and uh, unveil what the Republican proposal would be. And in, in re reaction to that, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, scheduled a news conference of their own so they could react to the Republican plan. But guess what? No news conference by Mitch McConnell. No Republican plan. Uh, the White House and Senate Republicans have not yet been able to reach an agreement between themselves, much less move on to negotiate with Democrats. This has some serious consequences because we the uh, the uh, enhanced unemployment benefits that have been helping a lot of Americans who lost their jobs with the pandemic, they're running out next week and there is really no realistic prospect they're going to be renewed in time to be continuous. We do know there there's a lot of pressure, a lot of impetus on Congress to get moving both on uh, the enhanced unemployment benefits, on aid to schools, on aid to states and cities. Uh, for expenses related to this disease, so they'll get they'll get back to it. But it's certainly proving to be more difficult than I think almost anyone on the Hill hoped. Well, the Trump administration dropped its insistence on a payroll tax cut as the centerpiece of this relief package in in favor of more direct payments uh, to Americans. And as Susan said, Annie Carney, unemployment benefits expire in ten days for most Americans. Uh, what do you make of this plan and these ongoing divisions uh, on Capitol Hill? Well, it doesn't bode well that there's so much intra-party divisions when they haven't gotten to the real negotiating, which will take place with the Democrats, um, who already want like a $3 trillion bill. This is a discussion about a $1 trillion bill. But the cutting the payroll tax cut, um, it was seen, uh, critics thought that, you know, it would not benefit 18 million unemployed Americans who are, you know, at the biggest risk right now. So that was the criticism to it. Um, and but that was something that Donald Trump has been really pushing for. Um, but that that dropped off the table. Um, and I mean, the the deadline is coming at the end of this month that a lot of these benefits um, and help to unemployed people are coming to an end. That's also why we see a rise in the unemployment cases. Uh, the PPP loans are expiring. People are having to lay off people in preparation for losing those term, those benefits. Um, what we're realizing overall is that these short-term uh, attempts to help workers across the country um, are were too short for this virus. This is continuing and, these, yeah. uh, and, and it just wasn't enough. Well, the number of Americans uh, filing for unemployment benefits rose last week for the first time since March. 1.4 million Americans filed first-time jobless claims. That means in just over four months, 52.7 million Americans uh, out of work. Larise Carrasco, this debate uh, going on right now on Capitol Hill over this new relief plan exposes rifts within a party torn between fiscal conservatives uh, who don't want more spending. They're angry about more spending and moderate Republic Republicans looking, you know, at a reelection fight. And a lot of constituents still can't pay the rent, still looking for a lot of help here. Luis, what did you see this week? No, it, it is really... Uh 
upsetting to see these uh, some of these Republican senators, including Ted Cruz of Texas, Rand Paul of, of Kentucky, you know, all of a sudden remembering that they are fiscal conservatives and that they are there to 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 fight to keep the deficit down after after they supported the president's tax cuts that have left us in much worse shape, you know, facing the pandemic or any other emergency than we would be otherwise. And I think they they are ignoring the reality on the ground with this moratorium on uh, evictions, for example, coming to an end and people all collecting unemployment, the, the desperation out there or people being forced to go back to work and risking, you know, getting COVID-19, which is, you know, why we're seeing all these cases as well. Uh, I, I think there, there's a real disconnect between uh, those elements of the Republican Party and just what's going on. Sticking to Capitol Hill for a moment, some other interesting battles this week in Congress. Susan Page, the Senate will hold its ground on ordering the Pentagon to rename military bases honoring Confederate generals. This has been a topic of interest to many across the country. Give us an update on that. Well, this is really interesting. The Republican-controlled Senate passed by a wide margin this huge defense bill, which includes a provision to rename U.S. bases that are that are named for Confederate generals to rename them to something less, less provocative. This is a provision that astonishingly to some, including some of his supporters, the president has really been advocating against. Uh, he's opposed the idea of changing the names of these bases. The Senate's now passed it by a margin sufficient to override his veto. I saw in a tweet the president uh, posted while we've been on the air, where he doesn't back off the idea that that he's opposed to this, he's actually threatened to veto this huge, crucial bill because of this provision. But the message from the Senate is, even if he does that, it's possible his veto would be overridden. I think this reflects hmm. one other thing we see, which is a little more independence on the part of Senate Republicans when it comes to their attitude toward the president. And we, they've been pretty much in lockstep with the president for the past three and a half years, they are now seeing their own reelection prospects get worse because of the president's political problems. Uh, the Cook Political Report, independent uh, analysis of American politics, uh, just yesterday changed its projection to say that the Democrats are now likely to win control of the Senate in November. That's something that a year ago we thought was not likely. Mm. Annie Carney, wrap us up here in the last 15 seconds. What did you see on Capitol Hill this week? Um, I've, I've been focusing on the Trump campaign and, 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 and the president, but this battle over um, naming military bases and forts and talking about cancel culture is exactly the conversation he wants to be having, um, not about the virus, which he's being forced to have. But the, this um, this fighting against cancel culture, he thinks there'll be a backlash to the backlash that will help him in November. Well, uh, there's more to come. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll talk about the 2020 election and we'll remember the remarkable Georgia Congressman John Lewis. We'll take a break here. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson, back again with our Week in the News and a terrific panel this hour. My guests, Luis Carrasco of the Houston Chronicle, Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, and Annie Carney 
uh, White House correspondent for The New York Times. Well, big news yesterday, President Trump announced that he is canceling the Jacksonville, Florida portion of the Republican National Convention. The president had been pushing forward with convention plans despite many warnings, but Susan Page, it appears he bowed to the pressure uh, not to hold a mass gathering during a pandemic. Susan. This was a surprise. You know, almost almost everything in the Trump White House leaks. This did not leak. We did not know that he was going to go along with the idea of not holding this convention. This rally is important to him. You know, the signature of his 2016 campaigns were these big, loud rallies in jam-packed arenas. And they were important both to kind of solidify and energize his supporters, also important because they energize him. This is the forum that he likes. They would go on for an hour or two, really remarkable occasions. And now I think he has acknowledged that he is not able to do that to accept the Republican nomination. I'm sure that is. Annie can probably tell, give us more insight into how disappointing that is to him. Big consequences potentially also for the campaign that's going to follow. If you can't do it for the convention, how are you going to hold big rallies in cities through the campaign? That is the way he likes to campaign. Mm-hmm. It's just a different world this year, and we don't know quite how it's going to unfold. Well, uh, Annie Carney, Charlotte, North Carolina, had been the original location for the Republican National Convention. Um I guess, what will the convention look like now? There's That's right. They moved it from Charlotte to Jacksonville because Governor Roy Cooper in North Carolina, a Democrat, was insisting on social distancing rules, and the president didn't want that. He wanted a pre-pandemic look of a packed crowd. They're still having one day of party business in Charlotte, which was always the plan. So, you know, 168 RNC members will come and do the boring business of the party and leave. Right now, there's not a plan to expand that, but we'll see. We'll see if there's an effort now to make that bigger and more celebratory in some way. Um, but what happened here, he moved the convention once. And and the reality is that finding a location with a supportive Republican governor and a Republican mayor just wasn't enough. And as Susan said, ever since t- they, they've had one rally in Tulsa, that was a debacle where he couldn't fill a stadium because people were scared for their health to come. They've canceled two rallies planned since then. They've canceled the convention now. The reality is that it's basically impossible to hold in-person campaign events right now, and it seems like they've pushed it as far as they can in trying to, and now it's it's they have failed to on every every count, including this, the biggest one yet. Well, the sheriff in Jacksonville, Florida, said his officers would not be able to provide security uh, for the event. Uh, the mayor chimed in as well. It feels like, Luis, that there's there's been a shift this week. Um, as I hear you all speaking and watching the news and reading everything, there's a shift for this president from canceling the Florida convention to promoting masks and many other things. What do you see changing in his narrative, Luis? I, I think that reality, like I said earlier, has finally intruded. I, I'm wondering if he didn't look at the, the state GOP convention here in Texas, which was supposed to take place last week in person. And, and that was a, a debacle as well. After resisting calls from officials to, to reconsider, the, the GOP committee just was going to go ahead until the mayor here just canceled it outright. There were court fights and then it shifted online. It, it really, I think, it was a harbinger of what might have happened in Florida. So mm. all of those things, just the cases of COVID-19 exploding throughout the country, have forced the president to, to shift because, you know, the fact is that the polls, he is cratering in those polls. And the reason is you know, his handling of the coronavirus. Well, that's right. Uh, Several interesting polls this week. Uh, A new one by the Associated Press shows that two in about two in three Americans disapprove of President Trump's handling of the pandemic. And largely because of that, Susan Page, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, the presumptive Democratic nominee, now leads the president by double digits in many polls, Susan. You know, it's uh, we we see the president. uh, Here's how I think Here's how a top Democrat described it to me this week. He said that Trump running in a referendum against Trump is going to lose. Americans have given up on Trump as president, but they are not yet sold on Biden as president. So if Trump can make this election not about Trump, but about Biden, there's that is the path to possibly winning a second term. And that is a task that Biden, in the minds even of some of his defenders, hasn't quite done. You know, he's been his he's been his schedule has been quite constrained because of the pandemic. Uh, he is 
inclined to make gaffes. He acknowledges this himself when he's out there speaking. And what this means, I think, is that the presidential debates this fall, which are always important, are going to be crucial. It's the chance for Hmm. Joe Biden to make his case to Americans that he is the person they want to install in the White House. Not only that they want to get rid of Donald Trump, but that they want to elect Joe Biden. Well, Annie Carney, um, you know, a lot can happen, obviously, between now and Election Day. But what is true is that Donald Trump is spending far more on advertising ahead of November than he did at this stage in 2016. Uh, Numbers this week, in the first six months of 2020, the Trump campaign spent $80 million compared with $21 million in the first half of 2016. Joe Biden, on the other hand, spent $65 million on advertising in the first six months of this year. Um, so I'm curious what you make of this um, process. Uh, the coronavirus, as you talked about, is limiting these opportunities for presidential appearances. But both men are surely making up for it with these ad buys, Annie. Yeah, I mean, this whole campaign is going to be digital. It's going to be online, and this is the way they're going to get their message out. We saw uh, Biden sit down for this very glossy talk with Obama that they released um, as a video because that's the only way they can be seen together, and that's an important surrogate for him. Um, so, And, and the, both of these campaigns have a ton of money. Biden has closed the gap with, with the Trump campaign, which was way ahead, but they both have a lot of money on hand to spend um, on that. So unlike Trump in 2016, which was a shoestring operation. Another number that interested me here is that the Trump campaign spent $4.9 million in polling since the beginning of the 2020 election cycle. Um, and Biden has only spent $317,000 on polling. Um, the polls, the public polls, there's really never not been a modern equivalent of Biden's double digit lead for such a sustained period of time. Um, in the past 25 years. Um, that being said, um, the Trump himself has told aides that he's staking a lot on these debates. He does, as Susan said, he does think these are a chance to turn it around for himself because he thinks that it will be a bad matchup for Joe Biden. And, uh, and the campaign is insistent that their internal polls show a tight race and that uh, they're not in line with what we're seeing in the public polls. Mm. Well, Joe Biden sat down with Barack Obama in a conversation that many watched. Uh, President Trump sat down for an hour-long interview this week with Chris Wallace of Fox News, uh, and that interview garnered 5.8 million viewers. It was respectful but uh, tough, and in this exchange, the president claimed that former Vice President Biden was in favor of defunding the police. When Wallace said that that was untrue, Trump ordered an aide to bring him proof. And Biden wants to defund the police. Sir, he does not. Look. He signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. I will get that one, just like I was right on the mortality rate. Did you read the charter that he agreed to? It says to nothing with, about defunding the Oh, police. really? It says abolish. It says defund. Let's go. All right. Get well, me, you, get you, me you, the charter, you, please. All right. But there was no proof provided to the president, Luis, because the statement about Biden, Biden defunding the police is actually false. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, we have a pretty low bar when doing our job is seen as, you know, news, which not to take away from Chris Wallace, who, who did a, a great job talking to interviewing the president and, and confronting him when he came up with these uh, falsehoods. But uh, and most importantly, perhaps in a very important platform, which is Fox News. Once people who, you know, viewers of Fox News who are very supportive of the president uh, can see the president, you know, try. Oh, dear. I think we lost Luis. Um, let's wrap that up and hopefully maybe we can come back to him on that. But let me move on for the moment here to President Trump this week signing a memorandum to prevent illegal immigrants from being counted when U.S. congressional voting districts are redrawn. Uh, Susan Page, uh, it was such an interesting piece, sounds legally dubious to me and certainly will be challenged in court. But I'm curious your take and what the endgame is here for the president. Well, of course, it's been a theme of President Trump since he announced his candidacy in 2015 to to, uh, rail against uh, people who are here, undocumented people who are here in this country People who are here in this country illegally. Um, the and he's the census has been a point of some attack for the president as well. You remember he tried to have added a sentence about citizenship to the census. The courts ruled that out. Uh, this is another challenge that Democrats and critics say he was he is destined to lose in the courts. On the other hand, they will apparently have to have 
a court fight about it. And during that process, he'll be able to make his case that the that illegal immigrants in our country both pose a threat, have too much power, shouldn't be reflected. Their numbers should not be reflected in Congress. That is not something that the uh, lawyers say is up to the president to determine. Uh, but on this as on some other things, the president has really exerted executive powers beyond where they've been pushed before. Annie Carney, this would create um, voting districts that skew more Caucasian. Uh, it would also cause populous states with large immigrant contingencies uh, to contingents to uh, lose seats in the House, right? Big left-leaning states like California and New York. How did you see this? Well, this is this is the fear I hear from Democrats and from anti-Trump Republicans more and more that like these polls look like it's impossible for Trump to come back. Um, but there's fear that, you know, if he can't win fair and square, he'll do things to, um, you know, re- redistricting here or uh, challenge the election results. This is all in line with uh, t- going outside of the regular system to create a more favorable um, election results for him and for his party. Um, so I think this is kind of in line with with the fears that even though the polls look good for Biden, people who oppose Trump uh, don't feel comfort that um, he or his supporters um, will leave power in November. All right. Uh, let me move on to some other stories this week. Uh, today was supposed to mark the opening of the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. Instead, the city is facing a spike in coronavirus uh, cases. Also this week, a judge ordered President Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, released from prison this week. The U.S. District Judge said Cohen's First Amendment rights were violated after the government demanded that Cohen agree not to speak to the media or publish a book about President Trump. The strange tale of Michael Cohen uh, continues. We had several li- listeners call us with their take on their top stories this week. Here's a listener from Dayton, Ohio, Catherine. She's a teacher. She left, left us a voicemail about schools reopening. Right now, there's a necessity for smaller class sizes, and I'm hopeful that this situation can have a permanent positive change. Here in Dayton, we have parents that are consciously choosing to keep their children home, knowing that other parents can't make that choice. I'm nervous, and I am gathering all my affairs in order in case something happens to me. I'm 51. I have a 12- and 14-year-old son. Thank you for the opportunity. And here's listener Deborah in Brooklyn, Maine, uh, talking about the next round of stimulus checks and the last round. I'm calling because I haven't heard very much about the stimulus checks that still have not arrived. And according to what I read online, there are millions and millions of people who still have not got their first stimulus check. I'm one of them. My check supposedly was sent on May 15th. I'm old. I'm on Social Security. I have a very small income, and it would help me to get my $1,200. A lot of people uh, struggling right now. Listeners, thank you for your input, for your calls. I want to spend the last few minutes here remembering uh, a legend, the great John Lewis, who died on July 17th of pancreatic cancer. Uh, The congressman, the towering figure of the civil rights era, was 80 years old, Susan Page. What struck you this week about John Lewis's life and legacy? So John Lewis, the youngest of the major speakers at the March on Washington in 1963. And at his death, an elder statesman of the Black Lives Matter movement through that all those decades, a, a towering figure in American life. And it wasn't because he ran for president. He, he represented uh, only just a congressional district in Atlanta. It wasn't because he was a soaring orator like Martin Luther King Jr. It was because he had moral authority. He repeatedly, during the Civil Rights Movement, put his own life on the line to stand up. He was a constant adherence to nonviolent protest. He had a kind of moral consistency that gave him really almost a unique authority to speak in Washington, especially on matters of race. Let me play this clip on Monday. On Point spoke to Congressman James Clyburn about his friend, uh, the Congressman John Lewis, who died on Saturday. And he and I talked about it, the fact that we lost our momentum uh, back in the 1960s uh, over headlines. And we did not want to see the Black Lives Matter movement lose momentum and lose its effectiveness over headlines. 
So both of us spoke out against defund the police. We thought that was sloganary that could not be helpful. Annie Carney, uh, John Lewis's funeral will be held on Thursday at Atlanta's historic Ebenezer Baptist Church after a week-long celebration of life uh, that will include stops in Troy, Selma, Montgomery, Hill Lion State, or repose at each location. John Lewis was the conscience of the Congress. Uh, your thoughts to wrap us up here. He was. I think I think Susan put it well when it, it was to have someone who just represented moral authority as a leader in Congress, especially um, in in these times, was uh, important and remarkable, uh, more than being known for passing a specific piece of legislation um, or anything else. It was an, he was um, an important figure there. One of his last public um, appearances was to go and visit the Black Lives Matter plaza in front of the White House. Um, and that was um, a pretty remarkable moment to see him standing there over those letters. Quickly, Susan, there's a bill on uh, Mitch McConnell's desk, the Landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, in, in the name of John Lewis, does it have a, does it have a chance? It, I, th- I think uh, the harsh truth, it has no chance in this Senate. But if Democrats gain control of the Senate, uh, as well as the White House, I think it is entirely possible that could pass next year. Listeners, there's a transcript of a great interview that uh, Meghna Chakrabarty did with Jesse Jackson on Monday, a powerful tribute to the great John Lewis. You can find that at our website. Uh, May he rest in peace. What a wonderful way to end the program. Uh, Many thanks to a great panel today. Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Susan, thank you. Hey, thank you, Jane. Annie Carney, New York Times. Annie, thanks. Thank you so much. And Luis Carrasco of the Houston Chronicle. Thank you, Luis. Thank you. Listeners, thank you. Have a good weekend. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balance Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.